tonight's story is for all of you who are experiencing election anxiety tonight, who are afraid of what the future holds, who feel lost, who feel that you or perhaps even our, our country uh, is in the dark uh, and has lost its direction, uh, and who are wondering, where is God in all of this mess? If you are thinking those things or wondering those things, this story is for you. It is most certainly for me. Like there is, uh, I am in desperately, I desperately need to hear what I'm preaching tonight. Uh, and I hope um, it resonates with you. Um, this is not my words to you. It really is, uh, I hope Jesus is. And, and what we're going to look at tonight uh, is the story he tells in Luke 18, uh, verses 1 to 8. Um, I'm going to throw it up here. We're going to keep it up here, but there's also some sheets of paper where this, uh, with the story on it, and you can take notes on it if you like. Okay? Tonight's story, Luke 18, verses 1 to 8. And Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Let's pray. Jesus, we long uh, for a word from you, uh, to hear you. Thank you for giving us this story. Thank you that it's been preserved for us, that we can read it and talk about it tonight. But I would pray that by your Holy Spirit, uh, you would um, illumine this text for us, that we would um, see deeply into it and understand where our hope truly lies. And I pray you would actually give us hope, the hope that we need, um, the hope that you promise. And I pray these things in your name. Uh, Amen. Uh, There are three points I really want to make tonight, um, all of them pertaining to hope. The first thing I want to uh, look at is, or the first thing that I perhaps maybe explain, uh, is that hope is rooted in reality. It's very different than optimism. Hope is rooted in reality. Secondly, I want you to see that hope is powered or propelled by promise. And thirdly, I want you to see that hope has legs. And I'll explain what I mean by that when we get to it. Okay? But hope is rooted in reality. It's powered by promise, and hope uh, has legs. First of all, uh, hope is uh, rooted in reality. There is, as I said, a big difference between hope and optimism. Uh, optimism is wishful thinking. Uh, it is imagining to, that things are better than they actually are. Uh, it is not rooted uh, in reality. From a biblical perspective, hope is none of those things. Hope is not pretend. Hope is not make-believe. It is not fantasy. It is, right, rooted uh, in reality. 
And part of what that means, a large part of what that means, is that biblical hope takes seriously the brokenness of this world. It is not ignoring it. It's not sticking its head in the sand or sticking its head in the clouds. Biblical hope is not rose-colored glasses like, here, try these on and see, it's really not so bad after all. It's more like prescription strength glasses. Put these on. I want you to see very clearly. I want you to see something very, very clearly. If hope is going to be real, it has to start with what is real It must be rooted uh, in reality. And our reality is that this world, our world, is broken in very many, many ways. And not surprisingly, uh, Jesus tells a story where that is true. That's where the story begins. There are many problems here, and those problems run deep. The story really centers on or revolves around uh, two main characters, a, a judge and a widow. And the judge is an unrighteous judge. He's been hired or elected uh, to uphold the law, to promote justice, to promote peace, uh, to promote human flourishing. But he does not fear God, the text says. Um, He even admits it, right? I don't like God. I don't care about people. (laughs) Right here. And he doesn't love God. He doesn't respect man. I mean, he is a corrupt judge. I mean, he's very selfish. He's not a good dude. And then there's this widow. There's a woman, and her husband has died. And we don't know the circumstances surrounding his death. Maybe he was murdered. Maybe he died of some uh, serious disease. Maybe he died in his sleep. We don't, we don't know. But she has been left alone, right? She is a widow. And as a widow, in this particular time and place, she is uh, extremely vulnerable uh, and prone to oppression. She has no land. She has no vote. She has no power. Um, Now, in this really male-dominated chauvinistic society... Uh, that she's living in. She lives in extreme poverty, uh, and she is, as the story says, the victim of injustice. She's crying out to the judge, help me, right? give me justice against my adversary, but the judge refuses. I mean, there, like I said, there's so much that's wrong with this picture, so much pain, so much hurt. Uh, and the story begins here because, no surprise, so in so many ways, so does ours. Like You and I woke up in a beautiful but broken world today. And it's a world that I think we can see clearly uh, portrayed right, in the story that Jesus is telling. Jesus tells us this story because he doesn't want us to cease praying. And he doesn't want us to lose heart. But in this story, he doesn't want us to skip over the suffering. He wants you to see it uh, and to sit with it for a while. You know, from the, bi- from the beginning, the Bible acknowledges that all of this is real, that the pain and suffering is real, that injustice is real, uh, that the system is broken. It is. 
The Bible never says it's not that bad because it is that bad. I mean, it's awful. It's so bad that God has to enter in and suffer and die to, to ultimately resolve it. I mean, it's terrible. So the Bible never says it's not that bad. What the Bible says, right, the language of hope is this is not the end of the story. That's the language of hope. It's not that it's not that bad, but instead, this isn't the end of the story. It's not the end of the story for this woman uh, and for you and for me, right? What we see and experience every day is not the end of our story uh, either. You know, if hope is rooted in reality, if it, if it sort of originates with this context of a beautiful but broken world, uh, it must also contend with the reality of the resurrection. Okay, if hope is rooted in reality, we, it has to contend with the reality of the resurrection. Christianity at its core is not a set of ethical principles. It's not at its core the, the golden rule or to love your neighbor uh, as yourself. I mean, that's not it at its core. At the core of Christianity uh, is a message of good news. It's an announcement. Something has happened, right? Something has happened that in, in time, space, history that has implications, right, for you and for me. For starters, right, what has happened is that in the beginning, God created a good and beautiful world. Right, Christians believe that at some point in time, it's hard to pinpoint exactly when, but at some point in time, God spoke the universe into existence. Right, that happened. And Christians also believe that thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago, on a particular day, who knows, it might have been a Tuesday, a real live Adam and a real live Eve said no to their creator. We don't want to be what you've made us to be. We don't want to do what you've designed us to do. And that hadn't happened before on this planet. And that has had, like, the ripple effects of that have, uh, have affected this planet ever since. Right? The world began to fray then and there. On that day, that Tuesday. If sin broke into our world, well, so did God. Christians believe that approximately 2,000 years ago, the second person of the Trinity, uh, the once invisible Son of God, became a real live visible human being in the person of Jesus. And Christians believe that this man lived a perfect life until the age of 33. Uh, and it was at the age of 33 that he was put to death on a cross on a Friday. And Christians believe that three days later, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, he rose again. And Christians believe that he is still alive and the tomb is still empty. My friends, why do I explain all of this? I'm saying this because these are not extended metaphors. Right? Christians regard these things as facts. Either they did or they did not happen. And Christianity pins all of its hope 
and all of its reliability on the veracity of these events. If these things did not happen, Christianity is sheer foolishness. It has no problem admitting so, right? Paul writes in one of his letters, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And we of all people are most to be pitied because we are living a lie. If the resurrection is false, Christianity is of zero importance to you. If it didn't happen, stop coming to large group. In, in a sense, right? Like, I know this is a place where we're trying to figure that out, right? But you get what I'm saying, right? If, if Christianity is not true, if the resurrection is false, Christianity is of no importance. But if the resurrection is true, Christianity is of ultimate importance, right? The one thing it cannot be is of, eh, so-so importance. It really is all or nothing here. If the resurrection is real, this is of ultimate importance. If not... It's of zero, but it just can't be of so-so importance. What does the resurrection prove? I mean, it proves several things. We don't have really the time to delve into it all. But here's just a few things, right? It proves, first of all, that reality is far more interesting than our textbooks would have us to believe. Right? There are invisible realities. Right? There is more than meets the eye. We do not live in a material sort of closed system. It's open. There's a God who can do things with it and in it. It's interesting. Interesting at the level of like Shakespeare being able to enter into a play, right? And interact with Hamlet, like that kind of interesting. It's also uh, another sort of implication of the resurrection is that death is not a dead end, but a door. It's not the end. And thirdly, the resurrection proves uh, the, trustworth- the trustworthiness of Jesus. You know, if Jesus says, uh, I'm going to die for your sins on Friday, and then I'm going to be raised on Sunday, and if those things, ha- like, if he's raised on Sunday, well, then ostensibly, what he said what he was going to do on Friday is true as well. You follow? Right? It's not just um, what he said about Friday. It's, it's what he said about everything. If the resurrection is true, we need to pay much closer attention to Jesus and to what he says. And one of the things that he says, right, is that someday he's going to come back. And then, look, I know that's hard to believe. I know it's hard to believe, like, that dead people come back to life. But this is the thing, like, if it's real, or if it's not real, this is silly. But if it is real, like, this is so important. And so part of your job part of, is to figure this out. You've, you've got to make up your own mind about this, right? But Jesus says he is going to come back, and when he does, he's going to make everything wrong, right? Hope is rooted in reality. He doesn't ignore the facts. It takes them super seriously. Like I said, it's not rose-colored glasses, glasses, but prescription-strength ones. Look at this. Pay very close attention. Make up your mind. Right. Secondly, okay, hope is powered by promise. It's powered by promise. Specifically, hope is powered by the promise that God is going to fix what is broken. That he is going to return to judge the living and the dead and to make everything wrong right. And this is not an open-ended question. 
This is not, maybe I will, maybe I won't. I don't know. Right? This is promised. I mean, it is certain. This is something that you can count on. Put all eggs in this basket. Like, it's promised. And again, this differs from, many, from the many ways that people think or talk about hope. Yeah, I was reading an article just yesterday uh, in the Wall Street Journal, uh, and the article was titled this, Seeking Hope in a Dispiriting 2016 Election. Okay, and in this article, all right, the author, a guy named Gerald Seed, he wrote this. Elections can either pull a country together or tear it apart. With election day nearly at hand, it is a statement of the painfully obvious to say that campaign 2016 fell into the latter category. Yet perhaps it doesn't have to be as bleak as it sounds. Perhaps there are some silver linings on the dark clouds that hang over this year's vote. Perhaps the coarse and vulgar debate of 2016 will shock everyone in returning to a more civil discourse in this country. Perhaps by shaking the establishment of both parties to the core, this year's campaign will ring out a corrosive tendency toward complacency and arrogance amongst the elites. Perhaps the Trump campaign will cause both parties to see that at some point sheer obstructionism actually does carry a political price. Perhaps the Sanders campaign will show that millennials actually can be turned onto politics and not just the politics of the status quo. Perhaps everybody will step back, take a deep breath, and say, let's not do it this way again. Perhaps the parties will rethink the way they choose presidential nominees, and Congress will reform how it does or doesn't do business. This is the last one. Perhaps the political system has hit rock bottom and now can rebound. You heard it. Perhaps. In other words, maybe, I don't know. In an article called Seeking Hope in a Dispiriting 2016 Election, friends, he's not talking about hope. He's seeking optimism. Hope is rooted in reality, and it is powered by promise, by certainty. In the story that Jesus tells, the widow goes to the judge again and again and again. Give me justice, please. No, please. No, please. And for a while, right, the, the judge is just turning her away and away and away. But then he concludes, right? Then he, he says, enough already. Though I neither fear God nor respect me, and yet because this widow keeps bothering me... I will give her justice so she will just leave me the heck alone. And Jesus concludes, look, look, if the unjust judge eventually gives justice to the widow, like if even he eventually gives justice to the widow, how much more will God, who is perfectly just, give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? How much more will he, right? Will he delay long over them? It's a rhetorical question. Absolutely not. Look, I tell you, 
Verse 8, I tell you, I promise you, he will give justice to them speedily. Hope is rooted in reality, and it is powered or propelled by promise. Yes, our world is broken. It is not going to be this way forever. This is not the end of the story. How do I know? Because Jesus promised that he's going to come back and he's going to make everything wrong right again when he does. There will be a day of justice. There will be a day of judgment. You can count on it. Finally, hope has legs. Hope has legs. Here's what I mean. On the one hand, you can interpret that to mean, well, hope is a person, right? And in a sense, that's true, right? Like Jesus is the living, breathing, incarnate hope. Uh, But that's not so much what I mean when I say this, okay? Uh, What I want to emphasize tonight is that hope, when I say hope has legs, is that hope takes us places, right? Uh, It doesn't stay put, but it moves us in a direction. A mentor of mine really drilled this into me. He said, what we believe about the world affects the way that we live in it. And as applied to hope, what we believe about the future affects the ways that we live in the present. I'll just say that again, okay? What we believe about the future affects how we live today. Let me give you an example. Uh, if you are uh, an atheist, um, by definition, you don't believe in God. Uh, you do not believe that there is a judge, that there is no heaven and there is no hell, that when you die, that's it. Your body goes in the ground. And unless you are super famous, you will be forgotten probably within three generations. No one will have remembered anything that you loved or cared about or accomplished in your life. They won't even remember your name. And how do I know this? Do you know your great-great-grandparents' names? You don't even know your family's names. You will, you have the same fate. You will be forgotten. Everything will be forgotten. Okay? And even if you are famous, eventually the sun is going to burn up and life will stop on this planet and be reduced to nothingness. And our solar system will grow cold and black. And the fate of our solar system is ultimately the fate of this universe. It is expanding at an accelerating rate into cold nothingness. And it will have died and we'll have meant nothing. Your life is meaningless. It is utterly meaningless. And if that is what you believe about the future, that has to affect the way that you live today. If you believe nothing really matters, then why are you pretending that it does? That this election really matters. I mean, you can convince yourself, you can lie to yourself and be like, it really matters if Trump's in the president, you know, is in the Oval Office versus Clinton, but it really doesn't. It's all destined for death. It'll have meant nothing, right? If you're thinking, it will affect your present. 
right? But here's an, alter here's an alternate sort of reality, or another way of, uh, of coming at this, right? If you are a Christian, there is a God. You believe strongly that, yeah, there is a God. Someone has brought this into all of this into existence. And he is going to judge. And there is a heaven. Uh, and there is a hell. And because of Jesus, I've been adopted into God's family. I was estranged from God, but he pursued me and he's made me right with him. And so I have, I'm part of his family. And he's made me an ambassador of like that future coming kingdom where everything wrong is made right. And until I go home, until I go to that place, I get, I have the opportunity to show everybody what that kingdom is like here and now by the way that I talk and the way that I act with others. And, you know, when I feed the hungry, I'm showing that, yeah, there's no hunger in God's kingdom. And when I visit the sick, I'm like, yeah, there's no more sickness uh, or sorrow in the kingdom. I have an opportunity to reflect that. Now, what the point, right, that I'm making, what you believe about the future, it affects the way that you live today. Hope has legs. It takes you places. And I believe that what Jesus is getting at when he ends the story this way, and he says, look, I tell you, I promise, God will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? I mean, what he's getting at is this. Is hope for you just something that you've, you put and, uh, you know, you, you capture it in a ball and you just put it on your shelf and you look at it and you're like, yeah, that's neat. Or does it move you? Does it inform your life? Uh, the pastor of the church um, where I, I, my wife Megan and I and our daughter Willa, we go to a church called Redeemer Burlington uh, here in Burlington. And uh, the pastor of that church is a guy named Joseph Pensack. Uh, and Joseph was the RUF campus minister at the University of Connecticut for seven years before he moved to Burlington to start this church. Um, so in a lot of ways he did what I'm doing now, uh, just at a different campus. But uh, I, it was several weeks, um, maybe, probably months ago, but he was preaching and he told this story. Uh, and in this story, he described, it was a true story about a friend of his who adopted a child, and I think the child was from China. Uh, and the story that he told really illustrates well, I think, this connection between faith and hope and love. He said, love is what initiated the adoption. Love set the whole thing into motion, right? It was because of, the, uh, of a parent's love from far away that, yeah, it, set, it, it was the, the spark. It was, it, this happened because it originated in love. So they go and they fly to China and they meet this, this, their child. And it, it's time to take this child back to the States. Okay, hope is the certainty that there is a family, there is a home waiting for that child back in the U.S. That's not fuzzy. Love started this thing, and, and hope is saying, yeah, there's a place that I'm taking you. You can count on it. We're going there. And faith, right? Faith is what 
keeps that kid sitting in the plane when the strange thing starts to take <coughs> off, right? Uh, and they're not in control of the plane. They're trusting, they're hoping, right, that, yeah, there is a family waiting for me, but I don't, I'm not fully in control. Faith is remaining in the seat, not breaking, like, down the, the cockpit door and demanding controls or jumping out and parachuting, right? Faith, hope, and love, all of them sort of working together. Uh, and in some ways, right, Jesus is saying, yeah, there's something for you to hope in, but will there be faith? Will you trust me in the meantime? Will hope have legs? Our country is broken. Our world is broken. Whoever wins tonight can't fix that. They can't. But we know somebody who can. And we know that because of this one, brokenness is not the end of the story. Christ has come. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. And that is why tonight, friends, we do not despair. And it is why we do not labor in vain. Hope is rooted in reality. And it is powered by promise. And it moves us towards suffering, right? Not away from it. Let's pray.